Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Aaron Martin, a writer and producer who's worked on shows like Degrassi, Being Erica, The Best Years, and Killjoys, and he's the creator of two current genre shows on your screens right now. The fourth season of Slasher, subtitled Flesh and Blood, and starring David freaking Cronenberg, is rolling out on Hollywood Suite this month, and the second season of his space panic show Another Life, starring Katie Sackhoff as a veteran astronaut leading a mission to contact the alien intelligence that sent a mysterious artifact to our planet, just dropped on Netflix last week, and it's as goofy and disaster-ridden as the first one. You should check them out. They're a lot of fun. Aaron picked The Out-of-Towners, the Neil Simon-scripted, Arthur Hiller-directed 1970 comedy starring Jack Lemmon and Sandy Dennis as George and Gwen Kellerman, a nice suburban couple from Twin Oaks, Ohio, who are going to New York City for a dinner and a meeting to discuss George's promotion. That's their plan. Instead, they're plunged into a maelstrom of delays, diversions, and disasters designed to test the limits of their patience, their character, and maybe even their immune systems. Just remember, it's a comedy. It's okay to laugh at them. This is someone else's movie. I found myself going back, I think, for um, almost like comfort food, going to movies from the 70s and 60s. Even though, I mean, I was a child in the 70s, but it still reminds me of, you know, being a kid and watching those silly movies. And this one's, I mean, the the uh, Out of Towners is one of my favorite from that that era. Well, when did you first see it? Were you Did you see this as a kid? And what kind of a, an impact would it have on someone who imagines New York? I mean, way? when I was, yeah, I was... I think I think I saw it when I was maybe like twelve or thirteen. My sister and I watched it, and I think we might have rented it like from Blockbuster or something. And we both loved it because it's so like my sister and I have always loved ridiculous, you know, over the top ridiculousness. And that movie is constant. It's like ninety yeah. for that. And uh, I was also, you know, growing up in the seventies, uh, the the views of New York you had were when New York was scary, and so it, it just it just uh, you know underlined my fear of that city. <laughs> yeah, no. I, I can see that. Um, and Nadia Litz brought Clute onto the show like five years ago, and, and that was shot in, I think, 1969 and released mm. in 1970, right around the same time as this. And, you know, there's this scene in a crack den, which I think is Washington Square Park now. It's like <laughs> one of the one of the wealthiest spots in the entire island. And there it's just like, this is a monstrous, horrible place where nothing like the Lower East Side is about to be reformed as, as Blank City. It just hasn't happened yet. But I was amazed rewatching it last night at how much open space there seems to be. Yeah, yeah, it's weird. Yeah, it's like that's it, it doesn't feel like uh, it almost feels yeah it feels less dense than than New York does now for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, part of that is I guess because they shot a lot of it in Central Park and and Midtown where things were still fairly low rise and they just aren't yeah. anymore. But I don't think the Empire State Building factors in at all, and the World Trade Center no. was just starting to be constructed, but obviously you don't see it in that one shot of the island. Yeah. And of course it takes what 35 minutes for them to get to Manhattan. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're on the, what they're in a airplane and it, things go wrong. Yeah. Then they're in Boston and things go wrong. Then they're on a train and things go wrong. So yeah, it takes them a while to get into actual New York city. Yeah. yeah. The, the cavalcade of misery and the, I, I really noticed this time I noticed the theatrical stuff, the, the way that Simon plays with repeating dialogue and, and, Echoing and yeah. the way that um, Sandy Dennis is just basically Gwen is just there to repeat whatever her husband <laughs> says and and sort of go along with it and and how much work Sandy Dennis is doing to sell that which is so <laughs> subtle that I missed it the first time around it's like oh she's not doing anything oh no 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 she's so good she has a richer in her life of disappointment 
Yeah. And her, oh my God, which is repeated every time something horrible is about to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I love her. I mean, she was so great in um who's who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. Yeah. Such a good actor. And this she was, was like the next year, I think, right? Like she would have shot this in 69. Yeah. And she must have been like in her 20s in this movie, right? Well, um, according to this, she was at least 32. Oh, okay. So it's not that big. Born in 37. Yeah. So, so, so she was the year my dad was born. Okay. And he was 45. That's not bad. That's not bad. And it's That's a decent, and, and I guess too, if, you know, it's, it's a small town marriage, it's probably, yeah. it, it tracks. And of course it always tracks older man, younger woman stuff in, uh, in Hollywood yeah. filmmaking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's such a, I was, I, I just thought that, that movie's just fun. It's just so ridiculous for 90 minutes. Yeah, I love the idea too that it is written by a New Yorker who is tired of people coming to town to visit him and complaining <laughs> about everything. Like it's just so. It, when we were discussing the setup before before we started recording, I mentioned that the fun of it is watching the city treat him like an infection. That that yeah. he's he's anxious and can't go with the flow. And and you know, I've I've never lived in New York. I sh- I should have done by now. Uh, but I've been there enough. Then. It really does feel like home. And the thing that makes it feel like home to me is understanding that you just have to match its rhythms or it will consume you. And yeah, I, see, I can't, I can never match its rhythms. I mean, I like big cities, but I don't like New York City. I, li- I like it for two days and then I need to get out of there. And, and I <laughs> love big cities. Like I love London. I love Toronto. I love Berlin. It's just that New York, I can never, like, I'd rather, I'm a, I'm a weirdo who far prefers Los Angeles to New York City. I'd spend I'd spend weeks in in uh, Los Angeles before I'd spend weeks in New York City. Really, I love I love LA, but I love it in short doses. The longest I've ever spent there was about six or seven days, and that was great. But I felt like I was running out of things to go to do. Yeah, yeah. but <laughs> it's like one mall after another. Yeah, and it's it's the size of it, right? The sprawl of LA just makes it impossible to feel like you live there unless you really do actively, constantly live there. But New York. Uh, my my friend Gwen, who we were talking about before we were recording, uh, she moved there in 94, I think, mm. or 93. And her definition of the city is that it forces you to be your best self because it doesn't have any time for you if, you, if you're not. <laughs> and, and it's not that they're, they're not rude. It's not that. It's just like it's that, it's, that, it's that energy that's nonstop. Like you can't escape it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's true. You, you need to be participating all the yeah. time. Situational awareness. Like people who are naturally introverted can hide in New York because you can go unnoticed. Yeah. But if you're involved with people and you're connecting and you you make a habit of looking people in the eye. Yeah. It's exhausting. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, which is, I think probably why I enjoy that movie now. I mean, the first time I enjoyed it because it was my sister and I watching it and finding it ridiculous. Now it's like, that is pretty much my experience. Every time I go there, I have something horrible happens and I get sick of everybody. And then I want to get out of there. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas I was thinking, oh, every single thing that happens to these characters has happened to me at some point. It's just never all at once. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the other thing also. I think I think it, it scratched the itch of the fact that I haven't been traveling for two years because of COVID. And I, you know, I travel a lot. I love traveling. It's one of my favorite things. And, and to have not been in an airplane since I flew back from Vancouver when we were shooting the show. And that's the last time I was in a plane. And it's, I really want to travel. And then I watched that and I remember all the horrors of traveling <laughs> just getting on an airplane is so awful in so many ways. Yeah. Apparently it's worse now. Um, I can imagine the joke of the out of towners of course, is that these people are 
simple in their desires. <laughs> like this is not a complicated quest. George and Gwen are going to New York for a weekend. To have dinner. To have dinner at the Four Seasons. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah the Four Seasons. They're staying at the Waldorf Astoria and they're having dinner at the Four Seasons. Yeah. And they're- And he won't let her eat on the plane. <laughs> yeah. And it's, just... it's, it's a fun controlling relationship that they have. <laughs> it's very weird. It's like now, and you know, watching it now, you're like, he has to ask him if she can have a cup of coffee. It's like- <laughs> yeah i think i almost think that that's just how she survived her relationship with that guy because he's crazy yeah yeah that's the thing about dennis's performance this time it's like this isn't an abused person this is a person who's bemused by her husband and has learned to go along to get along yeah yeah and all of her suggestions are entirely reasonable everything she says <laughs> is reasonable even the, you were being held up, what did you want me to do? All the stuff that happens, she's the one who rolls with it. She's the Midwesterner who just takes it and goes with it. Yeah. And he transfers all of his anxiety onto her. Yeah. Over and over and over again. And it, I realized the thing that Jack Lemmon does best in this movie, and he does it like, like a sustained aria, is mm. refuse to take responsibility. Right? Yeah. Like <laughs> anything. No, he just has that list and he just keeps adding names to it. Yeah, which is great, too, because by the end of it, it's literally the only thing he has in his possession is there's a list of people he's going to kill. <laughs> yeah, it's very it's uh, such a it's such a funny movie. Yeah. And that and and then, yeah, like I've, I remember once flying to New York from Toronto and it is New York is, you know, if there's a storm, you're screwed. Yep. And I once took I think it was five hours waiting at Pearson for an hour long flight. And it was just just awful. And I had this weird experience with Alison Mack from the, uh, the, uh, the, whatever she's been part of that weird cult, but, um, Next she, year, yeah. very rude to me. And so, uh, she was, and I, like, I was seated beside somebody else that she wanted to sit beside. And since instead of asking me nicely, she kept, she said, you're going to move your seat. And I was like, okay, Alison Mack. I never loved That's such a, do you think that's like the Nexium training of getting what you want by just stating it outright? Or was that, was before, this before that? Before. So I think she so might she, have. Some, she's even younger. That's just not cool. Yeah. Yeah. And yet that is George's response to everything, right? You're going wow. to do this for me because that's what I want. Yeah. Yeah. It's so true. And watching I mean, Billy D. Williams, that's Billy D. Williams. I was amazed. I'd yeah, forgotten completely that he'd done anything before like Lady Sings the Blues. Yeah, uh, but he's the he's the baggage guy in Boston who's yeah. again quietly bemused and gives him his name, and none of it changes anything. And yeah. it's the first like the first taste of the New York attitude that they're going to be confronted with. But he's just he he is so good at just kind of putting a laugh into his delivery. Yeah. So we're in a comic mode rather than a frustration. Like I was really struck this this time through a bunch of I don't I think I hadn't seen it in probably. I'm going to guess 25 years. Like oh, yeah. I had, the last time I saw it was easily before the Goldie Hawn, Steve Martin remake, which was just terrible. Yeah. And I just like the frantic pacing and the way Arthur Hiller kind of pitches everything is anxiety inducing. Yeah. And then the first thing that goes wrong, it's the stewardess with the coffee thing and just her casual refusal to play along, which I think is sort of the, the, the tribute that John Hughes built into planes, trains, and automobiles with the car rental mm-hmm. agent. It's the same okay. thing. It's like, I'm going to stand on ceremony, not because I have to, but because you're pissing me off and I'm just not <laughs> going along with it. And then Williams is so warm in his inability to help that mm-hmm. it tilts all the way into comedy. 
right? Yeah. Because you you could make you could play this story straight, and it's a horror movie. It's yeah. It's a movie about uh, not going in the woods, except the woods are a concrete jungle. Yeah. Well, everyone's trying to help them. That's the, that's why I think yeah. it works because they are they are all legitimately trying to help them. Even that even that kind of snotty guy at the uh, at the hotel, he's saying like, you know, I've got a room at seven a.m. You can just sit there and wait, and then you'll have it. And they won't. He won't. And it's going. She. I think San, Sandy um, Dennis would have taken that. But yeah, she says, let's just stay and drink coffee and wait for the room. Yeah. And George is past that. He's 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 a destroyed man. And yeah. and somehow Lemon makes this guy who is you know what it is right now you could remake this with brian cranston and it would be either a comedy or a horror movie like it could be a thriller about the last day of this man's life because he is going to walk into a sewer grate yeah uh or the gas man actually would kill him who would be the who would play gail would it be jennifer lawrence oh honestly i would want to go with um jennifer lawrence would be really good actually no, I was thinking when I was watching it, I was thinking the person that I would want would be somebody like Alison Hannigan. It's the oh, wrong, yeah. Like the wrong age bracket, but the right energy. Yeah, somebody yeah, yeah. who's just able to go like she could be. We know that she's secretly just as weird as he is, but she's not showing it. Yeah. Somebody, somebody like that might be fun. Yeah. But Lawrence is good. And Lawrence is great in anything. I would watch her yeah. do that. And that would be a bit of an age gap, though. Yeah. Well, I would be with either of them, I suppose. Yeah, who would, uh, would be an age-appropriate mix for Brian? An age-appropriate match for Brian Cranston in something like this? I don't know. There must the be younger actors who are intense but funny. Alison Janney. Oh yeah, they'd be fun together. Yeah, I love Alison Janney. I was so sad that Mum got canceled. Oh, was oh. it? When did that happen? Uh, a couple months ago. Oh, I missed that. But there, there's a moment when, yeah, when when Lemon is yelling at the cabbie in Boston, there's a moment where I just saw Cranston instantly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah. Frenzied, frustrated panic. <laughs> His cheap uh, 25 cent um, tip that he was going to give him. <laughs> yeah. And screaming addresses at each other. It's yeah. just, it's so weirdly rooted in its own, like it's, it's, it is absolutely driven by its own logic, which only the characters can understand. I, I would love to see how, Neil Simon plotted this. Like, did yeah. he use a flow chart to use notes? Did it all just burp out of him over a weekend when he was pissed at somebody who had been like taking up space on his couch and complaining about everything instead of actually going out and enjoying the city? Yeah. And it wasn't, it wasn't originally a play, right? It was, it was always in film. It was always, yeah, a it, it's his yeah. first film script. It's his first original screenplay. Yeah. Um, it still feels like it could be staged, especially after Plaza Suite, right? Like, he's sort of already done that. Yeah. But, his instincts for like rat-a-tat dialogue and back and forth stuff and echoing and mirroring it's it works for film just as well yeah yeah no it's it's such yeah he's he's a very talented writer (laughs) yeah and there's a sense too of like the the sort of grand history of of new york uh gwen describes it as an island off the coast of america where it's just become its own society out of necessity more than anything else and you can watch this if you are in the heartland and I think you could feel completely justified in George's position, like you could side, there is a way to side with him. Yeah. Um, but I did not. And I enjoyed watching his destruction. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think I would be like him in this situation because I can get frustrated easily and, 
uh, I can express anger easily. So <laughs> I might be like him, but yeah, I wasn't feeling his like, cause he just kept making stupid decisions, but because Jack Lemmon's so good, you don't dislike him. You think he's, you're, you're along for it and you, you want him to keep making stupid decisions. Oh yeah. It's fun to watch him suffer, which, yeah. which is why you know, like it's enjoyable as a comedy because otherwise it would be just yeah, you're right. it, could be, it could be like a horror. It'd be like this. What's that? What was that movie with uh, Goldie Hawn's husband? What's it? Kurt Russell. Oh, Escape yeah. from New York. Yeah. It could be Escape yeah. from New York. Yeah. I think there's probably a, a Gwen and George wandering around somewhere in Escape from New York. They were there yeah. the day that they walled off the city and now they're stuck. So how, so how, what was the, the remake like? Cause I didn't see it. Oh, it's bad. It's, um, it's bad. Han and, and Martin had made house sitter together. I want to say, Oh, well, I want to say, I know I did the junket for that in 1992. Um, and seven years later, Martin was direct. Well, he wasn't direct. He was making Bowfinger the same year. And I think he basically just had a, a contract to honor somehow. And they both got roped into this remake and it is just a soulless thing. It's yeah. pitched really high. It's got additional internal conflicts. Like they turn on each other, which is the one thing. Oh, that, yeah. You can't do that in this story. They need to be a team. Yeah. Um, even if it is the way Gwen just sort of unconsciously enables George yeah. for her own amusement, I think in the first half. Snap at him. She does snap at him in Central Park, but even then she's snapping at him in a supportive way. Yeah, she's trying to get him back on track. And yeah. she's already sustained. She's the one who gets physically injured. She steps yeah. on the flip top cap or something. And, you know, now she has hepatitis. That's not good. Yeah, I know. Oh, imagine walking around New York City in the 70s or late 60s without shoes on. Yeah, it's, it's a disturbing idea. John Hodgman talked about that uh, in one of his books. He talks about the most freeing thing he did was shoot a video, a promotional video for something, and he shot it barefoot. I think it might have been for his first book. Walking around Times Square... And yeah. yeah, he was he was braced for misery, and it turned out to be liberating and freeing. And I think it's I think it's because there's nothing has ever happened in Times Square that hasn't already happened. Yeah, like it's yeah. it's all recursive. Um, I love Times Square. Uh, I love Times Square now because you get to watch people watch it, and mm. you know they've they've got this these steps, this over thing uh, around Fifty yeah. Fourth. Yeah. Um, and I sometimes will just sit there with a coffee for half an hour and you can watch the entire world go by. There's someone from everywhere. Yeah. And because it's Times Square, everybody moves. There's the, the natural flow to it since they pedestrianized it. And it's just, yeah. again, it's this, a space that didn't exist when they made this movie 50 years <laughs> ago. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, that's the thing that's so amazing is how different New York is. I mean, like, I mean, I've, obviously every city changes over time, but like the shots of Central Park, it was garbage everywhere. The, yeah. the grass was brown and and dead, and it was like Central Park at that time was scary. You didn't go to Central Park, and the first time I went to New York City, it was '96. I weirdly I hadn't been to New York City. I've been a bunch of other places, but not New York. And even in '90, was it '96, '95, '96? It was still sketchy. Like you were still like, uh, what's the street um, uh, parallel to Broadway that has all the that did have all the uh, triple x movie theaters oh uh, there's well there's eighth avenue eighth. Uh, on the other side they still have a few like their dvd yeah. stores now yeah in fact, but that's the only yeah. place the dvd has survived yeah really but back then it was like still sketchy and we stayed at the um oh what's the hotel the edison uh and there was a fire when we were there so it was you know the first time i went to new york it was it was 
quite it was more in that world of of the out-of-towners than the Disneyland that it is now because yeah. it's just become so clean and so spruced up and you know, everybody who lives there has to be a multimillionaire. It feels like it, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. There's, it's still possible to, or it was to, to have like a, an apartment in a brownstone on West 73rd mm. for, for a reasonable amount of money, but it was a tiny space Yeah, and nobody, yeah, you just, you know, the, your apartment is for sleeping and showering. There's no other purpose. You can't actually live there. You have to go out and live in the city. Yeah. Um, it's always been like that, I think. And and since the, since the eighties anyway, since people started returning to Manhattan. Yeah. Um, but this, yeah, there's this window of time where all these movies were shot on location because it was cheap. <laughs> there was, there was nothing to do uh, around there. So you could just shoot in, burned out vacant lots. You could make entire chunks of clute and you could shoot the French connection with handheld cameras on 42nd street. Yeah. And, uh, and this has like those scenes in the outside the Waldorf Astoria that automat, those are all real locations. It's, it's yeah. not studio. It's not staged. No, no, it's, it's all. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder if they, did they actually shoot in Boston or did they make New York look like Boston? That was the only thing I was questioning. Yeah. I wonder the, com- the, the credits aren't, comprehensive enough to, to yeah. have locations listed or anything it would make sense if they shot it in boston you could do it in two days it wouldn't be that yeah. hard and it's close yeah. but you could also probably have faked it i mean there must have been train standing train station sets in the 60s there must have been something in brooklyn or in uh yeah in the bronx but, but it didn't look like downtown manhattan yeah but those shots of the waldorf Astoria, like that's they shot in the waldorf Astoria. i've been there it's it's eerie to see that <laughs> the architecture hasn't changed. I, I was there in, I was, I stayed there one night in 2012, I think. And those, those rooms do look like, like half finished apartment suites that the, the, the architecture of that hotel, once you get onto the, the room floors, onto the, the sleeping floors, is, instead of the grand lobbies, the rooms can be kind of punky and they, they clearly use one. It's, yeah. it's remarkable how detailed it is. And that yeah. the Waldorf Astoria, I suppose they didn't, have the, the like the concerns of having their image ruined in 1970 it's the waldorf everybody knows the waldorf but yeah they're they're people are helpful the, the people the staff are presented as competent and and well-meaning well and it's also his fault that he didn't keep the reservation as everyone keeps telling him including the cough he's like yes when he it's just everything everything really is his own fault yeah. Well, not the airplane, not the airplane being delayed, but he did book it too late. Like, yeah, he says late, late in the film, I could have taken an earlier flight. He's like, yeah, actually, you're right. You could have. Everybody <laughs> knows not to fly into LaGuardia after 2 p.m. <laughs> they were going to JFK, but even so. Um, yeah, the, the experience. And, and that's something else that keeps coming back in the New York movies, the, the truly great New York movies. They understand the ecosystem of the city. Yeah. Um, there's one way in, there's one way out. You, you really... You yeah. cannot push against the flow. No. And by demanding special treatment at every turn. And and just like that casual arrogance of buying a New Yorker at the at the Ohio airport to seem <laughs> urbane. You buy it at the Hudson News on your way in. <laughs> Don't be a rube. It's so it's like that's how that's the, the rite of passage. <laughs> yeah. And then at the end, they wisely decide not to move to New York. Yeah. This which is, is which is it's true. It saves their marriage, but I still think he should have committed. I think, think so? I think there's a better ending where it's just like, fuck this city. I am going to beat it and doom <laughs> them like forever to this cycle. Well, they, I, it looks like at the end of the movie though, they're going to Havana. So 
<laughs> yeah, if they don't go home, you don't have that ending, which is of course yeah. invaluable. But it is just such a it's such a fun, perfect ending to the the resignation that you no, know, you you never leave the Twilight Zone. You're already there. <laughs> and then he won't let her eat dinner again. He's so controlling. It's ridiculous. It's all he has left. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm trying to think of other New York movies that well, obviously all the Woody Allen movies, they all sure. get it right, even though Woody yeah. Allen. Yeah, well, that's the thing, right? Like it's such a specific vision of, of New York as well, where everybody has money, nobody really works. Like <clears throat> yeah. his his attempts to depict working class life or any other class of life in New York are never his yeah. best. Um, no. And and of course now all the power dynamics are problematic. Everything is problematic about a Woody Allen film in retrospect, but, but yeah. there are, I think you could probably build a syllabus for a university film theory class about the lie of New York city or the mythology of New York city that's being sold in Woody Allen movies, yeah. which, which Neil Simon clearly has no interest in. I mean, he hadn't, Woody Allen hadn't made those movies yet, but this is the, this is the counter to that. This is the, no, everything is awful. You learn to accept the awful and that's what you love about it. It's like, I, New York is a rescue dog that like it's missing a leg and one of its ears is on backwards and <laughs> it's still the best dog you'll ever own because it gets you right back. Yeah. <laughs> oh, imagine, imagine, I don't think the, uh, I don't think uh, Jack Lemon's character had a dog. No, he, they do have a dog. Oh, they do. That's yeah. right. They're out at the top of the movie. Yeah. There's this shot. It's a long shot. That helicopter shot of a, of a white dog that is clearly not barking, even though there is barking on the soundtrack. Yeah. yeah. And is that like their nanny that's out there too? Or I assume or whoever's watching the kids. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, they're not hurting, right? They're, they're a very, very comfortable suburban yeah. family. They will not have a chance in New York city. Like the kids will grow up to be poets and dancers. Yeah. But the city, yeah, the city will eat them. And maybe that's part of it too. When, when Neil Simon was writing plays about New York, he was dealing with artists and, and libertines and, and people who were just falling in and out of bed with each other and, yeah. or the odd couple, which was the, like the great urban misery comedy. Yeah. In the sixties. Yeah. That's another movie that I went back to. It was that I went, um, what else did I watch? I watched a bunch of, I watched Rosemary's Baby again. That All holds these, up. That really holds up. It's uh, it's really disturbing. Yeah. It's probably the ultimate patriarchy movie now. Like if you want to point yeah. to something and say, this is the metaphor. Yeah. Yeah, really, for sure. Yeah. Elena Harkin and Jeremy Lalonde did it on an episode of Black Hole Films a couple months ago. And it's it's great to listen to it because Elena had never seen it. And you can just hear all of her illusions being shattered of what she thought it was going to be versus what it actually is. And she's yeah. just, she's angry with it, which is great. It's such a great way into that movie. Yeah. But yeah. Um, yeah, in the in the history of of Neil Simon, New York cinema, The Odd Couple, I keep forgetting The Odd Couple is his. Yeah. And Lemon and Matho, right? The, Lemon yeah. had already done this definitive yeah. Simon work. But that's all that's all sets, though. There you don't, yeah. there's no that. I mean, that one really feels like the play that it was when you watch it. It's like there's this is a play. They didn't really didn't do it. They really didn't change much to make it a movie that I can see. No, and I think they didn't want to. Like, it feels it felt like a really conscious decision to leave it alone because, yeah, yeah, and that's in the '60s too. People didn't open up plays as a rule; like it wasn't necessary. It was yeah. giving the audience the experience of the thing that they couldn't come to New York to see. Yeah, uh, like Barefoot in the Park is another. That was a Simon, wasn't it? That's one of his. Robert uh, Redford and uh, uh, 
Jane, and Fonda. Jane Fonda. Yeah. Who are perfectly suited to it. Like weirdly in that sixties perfection thing, like these, these two yeah. human specimens together is enough to watch a movie. Yeah. You're like, I want to watch those pretty people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that was my pandemic has been watching movies from the seventies and sixties. It's been, it's been fun. Any discoveries? Is there anything you'd want to recommend to people? Just anything. I, you know what? We, it's actually funny. Um, I started, I also went back to the fifties. I was watching a bunch of uh, Douglas Sirk movies. Oh yeah. And uh, what's the one with rock, with um, rock Hudson and it's a, it's someone that far from heaven basically. Yeah. It's just, I mean, the, the movies as all, you know, it's kind of, it's so melodramatic and over the top, but so beautifully filmed and going into season um, four of slasher, uh, my, like my serial killer show, it was, I, I just watched it. And I said to the, the, the team, I was like, let's make, let's make the season look like a Douglas Turk movie. So that was, that was one of the things that came out of the uh, pandemic for me too. It's making a Serkian horror. I just, you know, it hadn't even occurred to me. There is a lushness, isn't there? Mm. And the family drama, like the sense of yeah, a cloistered space where people are just trapped with each other the weird out of time that we put into it and stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. Is there anything that influenced the second season of another life, which was in production before the pandemic, but even so. No, it was, um, no, because it was, it, we just basically took what we did in season one and then refined it and listened to some, you know, listened to some of the critiques and <laughs> address them. And <laughs> I'm really happy with it. It's a, it's a, it's a much more serious season than season one was. Okay, having not seen season two yet, because they only just gave me the screeners, uh, I don't want any spoilers and I don't want anything ruined for me, but I kind of love the fun of one, like the sense of, of this random chaos and disaster happening every week where something else would go disaster. Like that's, that there's is- still that. There's yeah. still that. It's okay, just good. There's not, there's not, I mean, I think that where we did missteps was the fact that these people were supposed to be, you know, professional. <laughs> And we just, we, we lent in, uh, we leaned in too much into the, uh, into the interpersonal stuff. And, you know, I come from a land of 20 years of doing soapy shows and it just said to pull that back a bit. Mm, okay. I do feel though, that the thing that's always missing in the depiction of long-term space travel, even stuff set on the, the, the ISS, you just, you would get on each other's nerves. Like you would, you're, you're isolated from literally everything with a handful of people that you only know professionally. Yeah. It's, it's going to get weird. It's just, it's just that I feel I feel like, yeah, I just feel like we, I feel like we found a better balance of that stuff. Okay. Yeah. All right. I don't want to know anything else, but uh, no, no. is, is there, well, the, the final question in the podcast is always, is there something of, this movie, is there something of the out of towners that you've borrowed or lifted or, or pulled or stolen? Is there, like, if you were given the opportunity, how would you work it in or where would you put it? I mean, ultimately another life is about people on a trip who can't get where they want to go, but I think that's a stretch. <laughs> that's a bit of a stretch. Um, huh? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, I'm not sure if there's anything. I, I feel like I was watching these movies more except for maybe the Cirque stuff more just as a uh an escape from the drudgery of being stuck in my house mm. and I kind of run out of tv series that I wanted to watch and so um I just and I was kind of finding myself hard to 
I was kind of finding it hard to like watch something sustained for multiple episodes of this. This was early on in the pandemic. And so that's why movies, and I kept finding fun 70s movies, just were like a comfort blanket for me. Yeah, I can and see that. This one's one of the, what is this? this one is one of the biggest comfort blankets for me. And Agatha Christie novels. I went back and reread basically all of them. Oh, wow. Reverted into my weird, you know, preteen self. Yeah. Jason Manzoukas was just saying that on an episode of Andy Richter's podcast that he has spent, if he looks back at the pandemic year that he had, I don't know when they recorded it, but it was in the spring uh, of this year. He says, if he looks back, he sees himself watching TV, rewatching, like he, re-watch, he rewatched all of Deadwood. He rewatched all the Fargos. He read comic books and he played games and he was like his, if he could have told his 15 year old self that he would do this for a full year, he would have been the happiest person in the world. Yeah. And we should be so lucky that that's how we got to spend the pandemic because it's been so much harder for other people, but you know, it still was, it's just so weird. Yeah. Everybody's yeah. Everybody's accruing trauma. Like I keep saying, but I saw a movie in a theater with a lot of people today and I only wanted to punch a couple of them. So I think we're, I think I'm making it through. (laughs) My thanks to Aaron Martin, whose chaotic sensibility is on full view in the second season of Another Life, now streaming on Netflix. And the fourth season of Slasher is also out, streaming on Shudder in the US and Hollywood Suite in Canada. Are you watching them? You should be watching them. You can find Aaron on Twitter at Aaron S. Martin, all one word, and you can find The Out-of-Towners on DVD from Paramount Home Entertainment. It's also streaming on the Criterion channel right now, and available on most VOD platforms. Please don't bother with the remake, it will only make you sad. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com, where I host the Now What podcast every Friday, and try to keep up with the Fall Festival wave. And you can find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme song is by the last year. If you like it or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're there. Watch movies. Stay safe. Wear a mask if you go out. Get your shot already. I'll see you next time.